Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 184, recorded on April 11th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. There's been some impressive progress towards an important milestone for getting Linux up and running on the Apple M1, and some indications that full desktop support might be achievable. Late last week, the co-maintainer of the ARM SoC kernel tree merged the Apple M1 branch into Linux Next, which is the staging area for code expected to land in the next kernel merge window. And that also means that it's not yet accepted by Linus, and it's months from shipping if he does accept it. But at this time, as we record, there is no indication or reason to suspect that Linus will reject this. In fact, it seems quite the opposite, that he will accept it. And it's a mind-bending initial set of patchwork that's been contributed by Hector Martin and his team at Asahi Linux? I think that's how you say it. This new branch includes basics to get the Apple M1 systems booting, but also in there is that brand new bootloader the team built to make this possible that accommodates USB oddities and whatnot that we covered in a previous episode of Linux Action News. Now, don't get too excited once you've got it booted up. Asahi's environment only has a serial and frame buffer console for access right now, but this is important work to actually get future drivers developed. We reached out to Hector Martin for comment, and he said, I want to emphasize that what we upstream just gives you a serial console, but it represents figuring out a lot of deep platform details about the ports, changes to core kernel code, and settles several technical questions that required a lot of back and forth, including things like what the bootloader is responsible for versus what Linux is responsible for. As we've talked about before, there's a lot of work and conversation that has to go in before you get this kind of stuff merged. Asked about the next steps for M1 support, Hector said. So the next step is drivers, and I expect that it will get a lot quicker than most people might think after we spent three months on just getting a serial console working. Sven is already sending in the M1 IO MMU driver for review, and we are working on PCIe Bring Up. And we found Linux code that matches the controllers in other SOCs. Hector also relate to us that he and the team are dedicated to shaving all the required yaks to get this thing to be a high-quality port. Clearly, they care a lot about this. There's a lot of pride, I think, involved in the work, and they want to see this shine if it's possible. Yeah, he pointed to a couple of examples of abandoned Android platforms where they have just created this unmaintainable code dump that is just essentially a fork of Linux. That's not what they're going for at all here. They want something that's long-term and maintainable. And I, I think they're going to get there. At this stage, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm confident that we're going to get a, a text-based Linux booting on this thing that you could use to, say, rescue hardware and do data recovery. And security forensics. I think we're really close to that. And that's going to be valuable just as Apple begins to sell millions of these devices and professionals need these tools available to them. So Hector Martin and his team are going to do a service, even if they never get the graphical environment going here. There will be a use case. But I am actually getting cautiously optimistic they're going to go all the way. I mean, it's obviously not time to buy an M1 Mac right now with the intention of running Linux on it, but it seems like it's going to be possible more than ever right now. Yeah, I mean, for his part, Hector Martin seems pretty confident that he's going to be able to get a fully working desktop on the M1 sometime this year. In response to Michael Larable over at Pharonix, who had doubted the project would reach that milestone, Hector responded with just, challenge accepted. 
And what might also be a positive sign with this is that as the Asahi team has moved along, they don't really seem to be running into a lot of artificial barriers from Apple. Maybe I'm wrong, but it kind of seems that in some respects, like how firmware gets loaded, how much stuff is handled in the hardware, like it might be simpler to get this going on the ARM side than it was on the on the x86 version. Isn't that funny? And the opposite of what you would expect is in some cases, the hardware is doing the like the firmware blob loading for you. The OS doesn't even have to touch it. And you almost wonder if there if there isn't some fire to the smoke about rumors that Apple is running Linux in the bowels to internally test hardware in the early development stages. Apple very well may have a few M1 test systems running Linux in-house because it it seems like they haven't gone out of their way to lock this out at all. In fact, they just simply haven't done anything to make it work, but they also haven't tried to prevent it. And if you think about it, if Apple was running Linux down in the skunk labs, would they say a word about it or would they keep mum so that way people didn't ask them GPL questions? But additionally, if I were Apple and I saw the roadmap of the M platform, I think I'd want to run these in my own iCloud data center. There's got to be obvious efficiencies to some of the ML stuff that's built into the chip, but also just running their own gear and their own hardware and having more confidence in supply chain security and also the performance and power savings when you're running your data center off a solar system, which they do with their Nevada data center. And I, I know they use Azure and they use AWS and they use Akamai quite a bit, but they also have a ginormous data center with actual physical hardware in it. And you'd think they'd want to rack up their own M systems instead of continuing to buy x86 boxes. And if they're going to run that in a data center, it's probably going to be running Linux, at least on some of them. Yeah, I mean, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, they're all already building their own custom ARM systems for the data center. You can really understand why Apple might want to do the same. Really, though, this story is just getting started. Before Linux 5.13 comes out with these initial patches, which should be sometime around June, you can expect kernel 5.12 as early as this week. Or sometime in late April or early May, we'll see. Either way, it's got loads of exciting new features, and we'll have those details whenever it ships. Well, speaking of Linux 5.13, also very likely for inclusion in that release is a new PCIe host controller driver, for the much-anticipated Sci-5 Hi-5 Unmatched board system. The Unmatched has 16 gigs of RAM, it has USB 3.2, it has one PCI Express 16 slot that is operating at 8x speed, and one MVME slot and gigabit Ethernet. When might you be able to get your hands on one of these? Well, the pre-order page from Mouser Electronics, which will be one of the potential suppliers anyway, is currently indicating they're expecting the Hi5 Unmatched to arrive sometime around the end of May. And that means that by the time people actually start receiving those units, this new PCI host controller driver will be shipping pretty soon, or maybe already have shipped to end users. That's pretty exciting, and if you want to take part and try this thing out, the pricing remains at $665. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account, and of course, support the show. It's easy. Linode.com slash LAN. $100 means you can actually kick the tires. Linode is the largest independent cloud computing provider. It's where we host everything for JB 3.0, and they make it easy no matter what skill level you're at to get up and going. 
and they have all the different distros you could possibly want to choose from to host on. If you run into any trouble as well, Linode has standing, amazing, 24-7 customer support by phone or ticket, all with hundreds of guides and tutorials to help you get started. In fact, in the notes, I'll link a guide to covering how to secure PHP MyAdmin. I get it. It's a useful tool, and I've worried about it too. That's what's great about their guides. They give you some peace of mind running this stuff in production. Linode is easy to use and has a powerful cloud dashboard. And you can kind of grok if you're a longtime Linux user that the people that run and build Linode are Linux users too. And their S3 compatible object storage is so useful, you'll find hundreds of uses for it. And then they have great features like cloud firewalls, simple one-click application deployment, super fast networking, and much, much more. That's why you just gotta go check it out for yourself. Try one of those one-click app deployments, something like that, and just see what we've been talking about because Linode is truly fantastic and the only way I would host things today. So sign up today at linode.com slash LAN. Get a $100 60-day credit towards your new Linode account and of course, support the show. That's linode.com slash LAN. When Firefox 88 is released later this month, It'll finally be making the long-anticipated switch to using WebRender as the default rendering engine on Linux. This is that final piece of all of the performance we were promised with Project Quantum back in, like, Firefox 67 timeframe. This is, though, this is one of those updates where it's impressive depending on how you have your system configured and the kind of hardware that you might have in your box. Interestingly, WebRender actually comes out of Mozilla's work on Servo and first made an appearance in Firefox way back in Firefox 67, which was released on May 21st, 2019. But of course, this was behind a config option and was not the default. You had to go into about config and set gfx.webrender.all to true before you could play with any of this new shiny. And Chris, you'll be pleased because of that Servo heritage. Yes, WebRender is written in Rust. That's right. I think a lot of our, uh, a lot of Rust and its uh, progress is actually kind of tied back to Servo. So it's it all comes together. Um, and also kind of in the Firefox vein, we have a link in the show notes for you. Have you ever noticed that extensions just seem to work better under the Fox? Well, it turns out there actually may be several technical reasons why extensions are better under Firefox. The uBlock Origin developer wrote a post that kind of goes over some of these highlights, and a couple of them stood out to us. Yeah, one of the reasons that uBlock Origin just kind of does better on Firefox is it has a better ability to uncloak third-party servers that use CNames to make it look like their first party, so-called CNAME uncloaking. But really just means uBlock Origin is better able to figure out where you're going, and then if it needs to, it can block it, which means you get more blocked sites. There's just a whole list, like uh, the ability to filter HTML before it's passed and parsed by the browser, improvements about the way Firefox brings extensions up. But the one that, that struck me, because I'm sure this affects a lot of extension developers, is the Firefox version of uBlock Origin makes use of WebAssembly code for like the core filtering paths. That's just not the case with the Chromium-based ones, simply just because of creating a smoother user experience in the Chrome Web Store. And if they wanted to use WebAssembly code for the filtering code pass, they'd have to ask for an additional permission at install. It would reduce the amount of deployments they get because other plugins don't do this. And so they don't do it. And it 
takes a slower path on Chrome. And it's just kind of an example of something that's both technical and political that makes it just not as ideal to develop an extension for Chrome. It's just because there's so many dang users that people do it. But I have noticed this with the Fox. I've noticed it seems like like extensions that I use in both browsers do work better in Firefox, and it's got to be some of this. Yeah, you know, Mozilla has a long history of being a uh, extension-forward browser vendor. So I think they've just figured out some of the things that you need where the right hook should go. But really, this is just the excuse maybe you needed to give Firefox a try again. Well, talking about more future desktop Linux stuff, one of the challenges about our Wayland future is it means sometimes we're actually introducing fragmentation and multiple implementations to do something. And that is exactly what's happening around extended display identification data, which is information that Linux can use to learn more about monitors that are connected. And currently, there's no de facto EDID parsing library for Linux. And so you, what we've ended up with, as you are probably fearing right now, is multiple implementations, and most Wayland compositors are just rolling their own solution. Now, this extended display identification data, that's the good stuff that the kernel needs to learn everything about your monitor or monitors. And then it passes that along to user space and offers various metadata for the different tools to set up your displays. But the problem that we have today is the various tools that we do have in user space, they need more information. They need metadata about high dynamic range, refresh rate, all kinds of additional things. And so they're implementing their own solutions to this, and it's not consistent. A prominent Wayland developer is suggesting that instead of exposing all of that parsed information from the kernel directly, there should instead be a unified Linux EDID parsing library that hypothetically, at least, would be a free desktop.org hosted project, MIT licensed, offer, you know, a way to use it from C, of course, and probably just take one of the existing EDID parsing libraries, sort of flesh it out, make it work, and hopefully the standard. That, I think, is the clever aspect to this, is take something that already exists that people are kind of comfortable with and then modify it as needed to solve the remaining edge cases. And this would cut down on code duplication across Wayland compositors and really solve differences that might end up being frustrating to end users and kind of make it a more unified experience. This is early. The call was made on the Wayland mailing list just recently and is currently up for discussion, but we'll keep an eye on this one. Before we leave the world of graphics, and with the crazy high prices of GPUs right now, we wanted to pass along a neat little tool that might help you get a lot more out of your existing NVIDIA cards. It's called vGPU Unlock. And what does it unlock? Well, vGPUs, or virtual GPUs, which normally are only supported on a few Tesla cards. But if you happen to have the right GeForce or Quadro card that shares the same underlying physical chip as the Tesla, it turns out that's just a software limitation. And now there's software that tries to fix this. And really, it's a fascinating deep dive into how NVIDIA pulled this off and how these intrepid hackers worked around NVIDIA's handcuffs. If you'd like to learn more and get the technical nitty gritty details, We'll have a link in the show notes. Linux.ting.com. I love Ting. I've been using them for years. And one of the things I really appreciate is a good family plan is hard to find. And that's why I'd like to mention Ting's new Flex plan. It addresses that particular pain point in a really customer-friendly way, like only Ting can. You can add as many lines on your account as you need. They're just $10 per line. Every line 
has unlimited text and calls. And every line shares the same pool of data, so it's super easy to manage and really easy to pay for the amount of data that you need. And if you need two or 20 gigs a month, there's a perfect Ting plan for you. And every Ting plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service with nationwide, multiple LTE and 5G networks for you to choose from and the freedom of no contracts ever. And with these three great networks you can choose from, you pick the one that has the best coverage in your area. But it also means likely the phone you got today will work with Ting. If you like your phone, bring it. Ting will give you $25 in service credit when you go to linux.ting.com. Check your current phone, create an account, and pick the plan that's right for you. They got a wizard that guides you through all of it, and then boom, Ting sends you a SIM card. You pop that in your device, and you're rocking on Ting in minutes. You'd be amazed how much you can just manage through Ting's dashboard and all through their website. And cutting your phone bill has never been easier with Ting Mobile's brand new plans. Get it all at linux.ting.com. Back in January, we told you about the challenges the KDE community was facing with the release of Qt 6. But if you don't recall, the important detail is that the Qt project's licensing model means long-term supported releases and, and updates to those. Well, those go commercial only once there's a new development release out. And that meant Qt 5 support in particular went proprietary and behind a paywall when Qt 6 was released. Now, you might think, what's the problem here? Just jump ship and start using Qt 6. But unfortunately, Qt 6 is still a work in progress and missing some essential features, which makes any porting efforts kind of difficult. And that is why most, if not all, KDE applications are still using Qt 5. That's why back in January when we did hear that news, we went, well, how is this going to impact all of KDE and in particular, my beloved Plasma Desktop. How are they going to manage this? Because clearly, they still need time before Plasma Desktop and all of the other KDE projects and lots of Qt applications are ready for Qt 6. There's still work they need to do with Qt 5. But as time goes on with Qt 5, there's going to be security fixes that need to be patched in or just general bugs that have to be fixed. And the Qt company will not be releasing those. So what were they going to do? That was really the big question we were left with. And now we have an answer because this week the KDE project announced their Qt 5 patch collection. Quote, as Qt 5 support is drawing to a close and we shift to Qt 6, we need to ensure that KDE products are as reliable as ever. To this end, KDE will be maintaining a set of patches with security and functional fixes so that we can enjoy good KDE software still based on Qt 5 until our software is reliably based on Qt 6. It's good to see the KDE project do this because it kind of is smoothing out the nuances, if you will, of Qt licensing in a way that doesn't really impact the wider community. I think they're, I think they're going out of their way to be intentional about calling this a, a patch collection. Don't call it a fork. It's not a fork of Qt 5. It's a it's a gentle collection of patches that we'll just maintain alongside of Cube 5. And that's that's a smart way to go about it because it kind of keeps this on the DL. It's not this bold statement that we're going our own way. It's just this simple, humble, we're going to have our own nice little collection. I mean, it's a complicated relationship to manage here, right? KDE and Plasma, they're big users of the Qt framework, and that is a relationship they have to keep managing. They want to keep benefiting from the open source, but here they're also kind of stepping up because, you know, many open source developers, themselves including, they can't afford to pay that paywall. There's no budget for that. 
they got to do something. And here's the Band-Aid. Before we go, a quick update on that adorable Linux-powered helicopter on Mars named Ingenuity. We were expecting a possible test flight today as we record, followed by about a 13-hour delay in finding out the results of that test flight. Unfortunately, however, NASA has chosen to reschedule the Ingenuity Mars helicopter's first experimental flight to no earlier than April 14th. That's because during a high-speed spin test on the rotors on Friday, the command sequence controlling the test ended early due to a watchdog timer expiration. You know, these things go wrong. It's experimental. That's true. I mean, that's what they're trying to catch right now. Yeah, this occurred just as they were transitioning from the flight computer to the pre-flight flight mode. (laughs) And so there's this watchdog timer that oversees the command sequence and then alerts the system to any potential issues it detects. Yeah, really, it just helps the system stay safe by not proceeding if an issue is observed and working as planned. And you need those kinds of fail-safe when you're a million miles from home. Right now, the helicopter team is reviewing the telemetry they've got to see if they can diagnose and understand what went wrong. Following that, we'll get a rescheduled full-speed test. Yep, nobody ever said space travel was easy. But we'll be keeping an eye on that story because we're nerds and love the idea of a Linux-powered helicopter flying on the surface of Mars. So be sure to get every episode because you don't want to miss that. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. Like what we're doing or want to let us know about a Linux news story we missed? Hey, just head on over to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And don't miss your celebratory 400 beer stein for Linux Unplugged. We have a special beer mug at luplug.beer for a limited time. We'll be back next Monday, beers in hand, with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Next week.